everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on the show, we're speaking with Matt DeLoss, who's the author of the latest explainer from the Government Law Center, Alternatives to Police as First Responders Crisis Response Programs. Matt's in his second year of the dual JD MPA degree program at Albany Law School and the University at Albany's Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy. He's also a GLC fellow and an intern in the center. And we're going to get to Matt in just a second, but as always, our reminders here at the top, we're coming towards the end of the semester here, so make sure you have all the updates that you need for the end of the fall and the beginning of the spring by going to albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. Also, follow us on all the social medias that'll keep you up to date on everything happening here at the law school. And if you want to hear previous episodes of the podcast, you can do that on any of the major services or on our SoundCloud account. Enough from me, though. Let's talk to Matt. Back here on the show with Matt DeLoss. And Matt, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody. And then also, we were talking before the show about this is a passion project for you, right? Like, how much have you put into this project? And thanks for having me on. Uh, Matt DeLoss, uh, 2L Albany Law, doing a JD MPA at SUNY Albany, Rockefeller College, and the law school. So for me, my connection with this kind of started after I graduated undergrad in 2017. And moved back home to Rochester. The 2016 election had happened the year before, and I was honestly distraught. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had a marketing degree that I (laughs) ended up using for a couple of months at a temp job, but I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do and and becoming more aware of a bunch of social issues that I was not aware of beforehand and ended up getting very involved in the police accountability board movement in Rochester. Um, Ended up being on the executive committee of uh, the police accountability board alliance, a bunch of organizations that were trying to get the board passed. And I was lucky enough to be one of a few who negotiated directly with city council on the legislation, which was approved last year, three to one by voters, which is awesome. But the more I was doing work on that and some other uh, community activism, the more I was (laughs) coming into either conflict or needed to know more about the law and uh, legal advocacy. So ended up going back to law school and I knew I wanted to go to Albany Law actually for sure at Accepted Students Day because of a conversation I had with uh, Ava Ayers, the director of the Government Law Center uh, about civilian oversight of police. So since the George Floyd uh, protests, uh, I had been interning at the Government Law Center doing some other research and ended up being able to direct my uh, research for the center and my personal research um, into this and uh, real happy to talk about it. Absolutely. And we're happy to have you here to talk about it. And let's get into this paper, the, this explainer. And the first thing I want to get out of the way, though, is a, is a definition. Your explainer is called Alternatives to Police as First Responders Crisis Response Programs. So what are crisis response programs? So crisis response programs are when 911 dispatchers send mental health professionals or social workers or medics or other advocates uh, to 911 calls about someone experiencing issues with crisis, whether that be mental health, addiction, homelessness, poverty. They're administered by local government, either with government employees or through a contract with a nonprofit, either way outside of the, the police department. I do think it's also important to just kind of frame it as what crisis response programs are not, because doing that it kind of provides a helpful perspective on current practice so for people experiencing issues with mental health like daniel prude in rochester it's not sending someone who doesn't 
have adequate training for dealing with mental health issues to that call and where it can escalate to using deadly force or for someone experiencing issues with addiction, which is a medical condition, it's not sending someone with generally inadequate training and who is authorized to use deadly force. And people experiencing homelessness, which is not inherently immoral or wrong, they don't send someone with inadequate training and who is authorized to use deadly force. So instead for these types of 911 calls, what crisis response programs aim to do, uh, send trained advocates to deal with these issues instead of criminalizing them. And in the explainer itself, you talk about some specific examples. So we have Austin, Texas, Eugene, Oregon, Olympia, Washington, and Edmonton in Canada. Can you maybe pick one of those and explain what that particular city is doing when it comes to these kind of programs that we just talked about? Yeah, so I'll start with Olympia uh, for two reasons. First, uh, it was the most recently formed and Unlike the other programs, it was from the start part of the city's emergency response. It was integrated within it. The other ones were nonprofit programs that became part of the 911 and emergency response. And second, Olympia's population of about 50,000 makes it relevant for you know a greater number of local governments. So the crisis response unit program, that's the name of Olympia's program, is made up of nurses and behavioral health specialists. And it's administered by a nonprofit through a contract with the city. And like I said, it's fully integrated into the city's 911 and emergency response. Workers carry police radios and respond to calls about people experiencing crises. And they can respond directly to 911 calls uh, from the dispatcher. They can, while out, initiate their own interactions. They can, you know, with the police radios, uh, divert calls from police where appropriate. Or uh, they can also respond to police and other first responders who are already at a scene to provide assistance, whether that is connection to services or maybe de-escalation. Um, it's, it's another layer to the uh, pre-existing emergency response. How effective do you find these programs? Do they lower violence? What are some of the things that communities get out of programs like this that we can show through these examples? The beauty of these programs, talking about reduction in violence and reduction of of chances for negative police citizen interactions. Um, I'll talk about uh, Eugene Oregon's program, which is kind of like the gold standard uh, for these programs. It was started in 1989 with one van and it has a, a tongue in cheek name. It's called Cahoots, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. <laughs> it was alluding to the fact that the program, which is run by a local nonprofit, was in cahoots with the Eugene police. So in 2019, that program responded to 20% of all 911 calls in Eugene and the neighboring community of Springfield, or about 24,000 calls. And of those 24,000 calls, CAHOOTS workers requested police backup only 160 times, or 0.625% of the time. And in 31 years of the CAHOOTS program, no worker has been seriously injured at a scene, driving at, at all. So getting back to the question, that's 24,000 calls where there is just a 0% chance of somebody being having force used on them or, or potentially being shot or, or arrested. Again, as I said earlier, <clears throat> often for things which most people don't consider inherently bad or criminal, like having issues with mental health or being homeless. In Eugene and the other cities in the explainer, workers in these programs could not only be dispatched directly by 911, but either requested to the scene by officers or other emergency responders or go to scenes uh, themselves so they can de-escalate and diffuse and enable communication in tense situations. 
money really drives a lot of programs like this, but are there financial benefits that these programs bring to cities that they are a part of? There's really a lot. One that isn't discussed in the explainer, but I knew of previously, and I learned more about in my state and local government class with Professor Kingsley, are uh, wrongful death lawsuits and lawsuits related to excessive use of force, which it, it can be considerable sums for municipalities. And even if the claim doesn't go through, it, it doesn't end up resulting in a settlement or, or any success. Uh, it's still draining on the city's resources to defend against those claims. As far as the explainer, overall, these programs by diverting people from unnecessary arrest or hospitalization and instead providing them with treatment, um, it frees up resources for all emergency responders. So police don't have to respond to these types of calls. They can focus on more violent calls. Uh, EMS workers can respond to more urgent medical conditions, which during the COVID era is more important than ever. And the criminal justice system itself doesn't have the resources sapped from it by having people come in for being homeless or, or having any, any of the issues that we've been talking about. Um, so the explainer actually, the way it estimates the, the difference in price for policing versus these programs is it looks at the each city's police department budget divided by the number of calls it responded to in that year, and then doing the same thing for each city's crisis response program. So you get an estimated call per response, price per response. In the two cities I've already mentioned, Eugene, Oregon, the estimated cost per response for police was $486.74. And the estimated cost per response for the CAHOOTS program, uh, which started 31 years ago, was $87.50, or about a fifth of the cost. And in Olympia, Washington, the estimated costs per response were $362.75 for the department and $158.07 for the crisis response program, which was only started a few years ago, or about half the cost. Um, so for each individual call, on top of those other system-wide benefits that, that cities and communities see, the individual cost per each response is drastically less. And then for reference, the estimated cost per response for the Albany Police Department was $521, and that seems about average for a city of its size in New York State. And one last thing with funding, uh, and it's discussed in length in the explainer, is that current police department and uh, emergency response budgets are supplemented with numerous state and federal grants for public safety and policing. And it goes over these in the explainer. There might be opportunities for local governments to, in the future, apply for and use some of those grants for crisis response and other alternative first responder programs and then additionally, because the crisis response programs are really health-based services along with uh, community safety, um, there might be additional health-related funding streams available for these programs. You do say in the explainer that there are some obstacles and questions about how these programs are designed, how they're implemented. What were some of the biggest obstacles that you found these programs face? Yeah, I don't know about biggest because it seems to depend on you know local customs, culture, politics. Overall, I would say the fact that they're not widespread is a hindrance to them getting started. There's no chicken, there's no egg. But as discussed in the explainer, more and more communities, uh, this, especially this year, have started the process to create their own crisis response program. One issue that came up in programs was inadequate funding. Each program, other than Olympia, which that one is only a couple of years old, and it was originally planned to be part of the 911 response, the demand for the program always was more than the funding available for it. You know, it goes over you know, annual reports and some other documents from each of these programs and from the city's budgets that essentially <laughs> year over year say, 
there's more need for this program than we have funding for in Eugene, for example, which again, that's a 31 year old program, the CAHOOTS program, they've really increased the funding for it in the past 12 years because they started to actually track and do a database approach to their, their emergency response and their policing. And they realized how valuable CAHOOTS was. And they went from having, I believe, one or two vans with six, about six staff members in 2008. And now they have, uh, I'm not even sure how many vans, but about 40 staff members. And like I said, that program uh, responds to about 20% of Eugene's 911 calls. Another thing is police unions can be in opposition, um, but police chiefs and officers in cities with these programs are really supportive of them. Eugene's police chief and many officers, especially because that program's been around for 31 years, which is longer than basically everyone on the force. Everyone said they really couldn't imagine their job without cahoots. So I thought that was interesting. But that does also play into, and it's mentioned, uh, just recent studies, especially the past few months, just polling Americans on their their support for the idea of a crisis response program. It's been over two thirds. If somebody is hearing this and they're thinking about maybe starting one of these kind of programs in their area, what are the steps that a community does have to take to get one of these off the ground? Look at what is already in your community. You don't want to be building new systems in a silo. You want to integrate everybody who's out there doing great work already, which is something that is is talked about in the explainer. Um, A lot of these programs either absorbed or were built directly off of other programs that weren't uh, crisis response programs, but they provided similar services. So again, really looking at uh, local needs and in the explainer, there's a whole, uh, basically a checklist for communities that want to do this. But first is surveying local needs. So you look at your call data to see, you know, what call types the crisis response program might respond to, um, how frequent those call types are, things like that. Again, get those local stakeholders. You should, from the start, be including every stakeholder, whether that's um, homeless service providers, healthcare professionals, emergency services, you name it. Also, from the beginning, it's important to include people from the groups that this program is aimed at, whether it's uh, people experiencing issues with mental health, experiencing issues with addiction, and making sure they're included in the design process. So really just uh, getting a good understanding of where you're at now, and then Uh, The next step would be to decide on how you want to operate the program, how you want to structure it, whether it's going to be within the city, through a contract, um, and then definitely look at funding for it. Next step would be to uh, either reallocate some funding towards the program, or uh, if if the community decides to do a contract with a nonprofit, you issue requests for proposals. And crucially, before the program actually starts, is training 911 call takers and first responders on on the crisis response program. Because one thing that did happen in every community was, at first, once these when these programs started, um, police and other first responders were a little hesitant to completely rely on them, which is understandable. Uh, and you know, once they saw these programs work effectively, uh, it, it was pretty swift for for officers and other first responders to have trust in the in the program but that can be mitigated somewhat by really training and and helping other first responders understand the role of these crisis response programs lastly would be to just uh, start it and uh, you know it's discussed in the explainer depending on the size of the city the aims of the program uh, you might want to do a pilot program first and then scale up or depending on the size of your community it might make sense to just do a community-wide uh, program
We're running a little short on time, so we're going to jump right over to the lightning round. Are you ready for the lightning round, Matt? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. First one up here is you actually mentioned it in your intro a little bit, but I wanted to dive into it a little bit more. You said you're part of the JD MPA program at, here at Albany Law and at University at Albany's Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy. How did you get involved in this program and what have been some of the biggest benefits working in this dual environment? Yeah, so I had considered applying originally when I applied to Albany Law, but having been away from school for a couple of years, I, adding another year was daunting. But after talking with some alumni, Nick Rangel, Senior Counsel for the New York State Senate Majority and Government Law Center Advisory Board member, uh, I realized an MPA would be worth the additional work. And luckily they set it up so that first year students um, have until the end of their, their first year at Albany Law to apply to the program. And it's been really beneficial to have access to research from both institutions, the faculty, and networks have been great. Next up here is your GLC Fellow, and that's a very popular program here at Albany Law. What have been some of the benefits of it, and what have you just experienced in it, being in it for a little while now? I love being a GLC Fellow. Uh, you get access to the GLC's trainings, networks, um, wonderful staff, um, and also get to um, communicate with other law students who are likewise interested in government law. Last one here for the lightning round. What's the best Thanksgiving side dish? Okay, uh, I'll go with stuffing because I only eat stuffing on Thanksgiving. <laughs> nice. I'm also a big stuffing guy myself, so I you don't worry. Nope. You're not alone on that <laughs> island. <laughs> Last one here. We ask it to everybody who comes on to the podcast. Anything you'd like to say to the law school community out there? It's been a long year. It's been a long semester. We've kind of gotten through it together, but... Anything you want to say to everybody out there? It's okay to feel bad and not be 100% productive during a global pandemic. Good luck on finals. Um, and I hope you and yours stay safe and well forever, but especially during the COVID era. Matt, thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.